Thank you, Nell. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 3. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we would love to have them, and we'll be praying for you this week. Romans chapter 3, let's go ahead and get started on this um, subject of the law and the gospel. And I, I hope that this will give some clarity. Maybe you have been on a Bible reading program and you've clipped along through Genesis. Exodus uh, went well until you hit the Ten Commandments and then entered into the civil law of Israel and wondered, who is this for? And I'm hoping that uh, from what we look at in the scriptures this morning, you will have a better understanding for that. And also for us to regard the law of God, God's standard of holiness, and how that is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. R.C. Sproul wrote, Christianity is not a religion that sanctions the idea that everyone has the right to do what is right in his own eyes. Perhaps one of the saddest seasons of redemptive history is the book of Judges. Five times, I believe, in that book, the writer stated, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, it's marked by chaos and instability and, and ruin. Following Jesus Christ is a surrender of our lives to his authority, which is expressed in the law of God and in the truth of his word. And sometimes people want to distance themselves from any kind of restraint, believing that somehow that harms the grace of the gospel. In an effort to push back on any kind of standard, they'll say something like, Christianity isn't a list of rules of do's and don'ts. But somehow that's to be admired. <laughs> uh, certainly, we would stand against legalism. Jesus' hardest statements were against the Pharisees who loved to keep the law as they thought. Legalism is the pursuit to earn God's favor through good works. And clearly, throughout the Bible, we see that we cannot. And Jesus, again, reserved his strongest criticism for the Pharisees who were Quite the evangelists who regarded Scripture in a high way, who were faithful tithers and lost. They boasted in being from the Abraham's seed, but that could not redeem their soul. So legalism is the adherence to the letter of the law to the exclusion of the spirit of it. And if you probe very deeply, you would soon see that even the Pharisees were hypocritical in their heart of hearts. Christianity involves much more than a list of rules, yet it is not less than following commandments set forth by Jesus Christ himself. To be a follower of Jesus involves a personal relationship with him through the new birth by which we are transformed by his grace with a heart to follow him and obey him. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? Don't call me that if you don't have a heart to follow me. At the heart of the Christian life is discerning what the will of the Lord is, Ephesians 5, 17, and we receive guidance from the Word of God. So we conclude Romans 1 through 3. We've spent the better part of a year on these three chapters, and for good reason, because understanding how sin has impacted the human race and each one of us individually is important in understanding the gospel and being a gospel people. This morning, I want to look at something 
that I think is critical to our understanding of the Bible and the gospel, and that is how the law of God and the gospel of God flow together in the believer's life. If we back up to Romans chapter 1, Paul begins this section in verse 16 where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he's saying without apology, I'm not ashamed of this gospel message of a sinless Savior, God's own Son who walked among us, kept the law of God perfectly, died on a cruel cross, and in those six hours on that Friday long ago, paid for our sins once and for all, that whoever turns from their sins and believes in Him shall be forgiven, made right with God, justified in the courtroom of heaven, redeemed, adopted into His forever family, and on and on it goes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the righteousness of God revealed, verse 17. From faith for faith, for the the righteous shall live by faith. This is a theme in the Old Testament, and we picks up here in the introduction of the gospel, that if you're going to be right with God, it's a walk of faith. It is believing and trusting and relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ in order to, to receive God's righteousness that He bestows by faith in His Son. Not good works. We're saved by grace for good works. And then he goes into this awful transition in verses 18 through the remainder of chapter chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in Christ by faith in Him. The wrath of God is revealed as well. And he talks about the, the spiral, the spiraling trajectory of the human um, race that we have spiraled downward. The wrath of God is revealed, and he looks at the reason why, that we have suppressed the truth of God. God reveals himself in creation, and we come up with absolutely irrational explanations of the beauty of the cosmos. That somehow it happened in an accident? Are you kidding me? That defies logic. And so... The heavens declare the glory of God, and God wasn't finished there, that God has spoken through His Word, and if you read the Bible, you hear over and over again why it is set apart from any other book of antiquity or in modernity. The Lord says, thus saith the Lord, the Lord God said. And it's not a circular argument either, because you have 40 authors over a span of 1,600 years saying the same thing. So, God has spoken through creation, God has spoken through His Word, God has spoken through His Son. In these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at what it means to be a follower of Him, our rescue from this downward spiral of suppressed truth and all that flows from it, and if you read this, you see how it affects the human race with regard to to idolatry, with regard to sexual immorality, with regard to a debased conscience. And so the gospel is held up as this is the good news. (laughs) This is what God has given to a, a wayward world. Come to me, he says. So let's break this 
topic down in several ways. If you're following on your insert, the first question I'd like to ask is, how are we to understand the law of God? Maybe you've had kind of a pushback to the law in your church experience or Bible experience. We've heard we're not saved by works, we're not saved by the keeping of the law. And I feel like maybe that has contributed to somehow the law is not important in the believer's life. And it is. Uh, How are we to understand the law of God? Again, Paul mentions the law 33 times in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans. Chapter 2, he talks about the Gentiles being without the law and the Jews being with the law and that no one can keep the law perfectly. He, he says in chapter 3, 19 uh, and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. So nobody's justified by their law keeping. Every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Would you take that? That's a universal negative. Not a single person in this world will be justified by keeping the law. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, how are we to understand this? I was wanting to read my Bible this year and I was hitting Genesis and came into Exodus and Leviticus was like mission impossible for me. I couldn't get through it. What, how am I to understand these strange laws that are often in the popular culture thrown back in our face as some reason uh, to discredit the Bible? One of my favorite courses that we teach here in our seminary classes uh, is the class of hermeneutics. And in that class of hermeneutics, which is a 50-cent word, which speaks to the science of biblical interpretation, how do I understand the Bible? Yes, we want to read the Bible around here. We emphasize that in our worship services. We want to, to, to hear it, to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate upon it day and night. But we also want to learn how to interpret it, to apply it. And so when it comes to the law of God... Uh, There are several things that we need to consider. If you've read in the book of Exodus or Leviticus, maybe Numbers or Deuteronomy, um, these books were written to Israel. The Bible is a book of covenants. And the law was written specifically to Israel in context. And so often when we come to bizarre laws. It is speaking to the ceremonial law of Israel or the civil law of Israel. For example, the ceremonial law is unique to Israel, not 21st century uh, uh, United States. Ceremonial laws were defined as those that dealt with sacrifices and festivals and priestly activities. In Deuteronomy 16, 13, for instance, celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Well, you know, how does that apply to me? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. It was written to Israel, not saying that it's not unimportant. These are these facts, this composite, this mosaic given to us was given for our learning, that we would learn God's order and God's character and how God's people were to follow in faith and in obedience. 
God's ceremonial law is not applicable to us at present. It was given to Israel. God's civil law, secondly, I would mention, laws that govern the nation. When God said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, so uh, laws were, were, were given that were meant to, to bring forth justice and to reflect the justice of God for those who transgressed it. Civil laws were those describing aspects that we normally see in a country's legal system. For instance, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. That sounds like a good offer, doesn't it? In ancient Israel, that's the way it was. Deuteronomy 15.1. Oh, here's one that'll bless you. Do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I know that's going to be something you're going to have to work through this afternoon. And you're wondering, well, who does that speak to? Well, it, spe- it spoke to the nation of Israel dealing with the customs and times that they were facing in order that they might live and honor the Lord God before pagan nations around them. And sometimes we hear the culture at large right now um, take these ceremonial and civil laws and throw them at us like we're to discount the Bible. We often in our hermeneutics class show a a clip from a a popular television program uh, in which the President of the United States comes in after re-election and he notices um, an evangelical in the room and um, is pretty fired up at her and comes at her and he says... um, uh, he, he says to her, I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. And she responds, which Leviticus does. And she, she responds, I, I don't call homosexuality an abomination. The Bible does. Yes, it does, he interrupts her. Leviticus 18.22, chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, which is sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. That would be a, what would be a good price for her, he said with manifest scorn. My chief of staff insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 says that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself or call the police? This is important because we have a lot of sports fans in our town in Washington. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Le- Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington football team still play? Can they still play? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to, to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering or wearing garments made from two different threads? And it's like he just throws down the trump card. It says, there, you and your stupid Bible. Well, what's he doing? I think the right response to that kind of attack is, you don't know what you're talking about. You're making fatal hermeneutical mistakes. That's what you're doing. Because you're taking Israel's ceremonial law and Israel's civil law, and you're imposing a on our culture now, and that's not the point. So why why are we making a big deal out of the law today? Well, it's the third category I want us to, to, to notice in the Old Testament, and that's God's moral law. 
that is not fixed on Israel, but is transcendent in the sense that it speaks to every generation. God's moral law. Where do you think we find that in the Old Testament? Need a cup of coffee? The Ten Commandments. Thank you, Chuck. God's moral law, which is not confined to Israel proper at a specific time, but is transcendent that, include, that, that will be timeless in its application uh, as long as there is uh, history, as long as there is life on this earth. God's Ten Commandments. And what do they say? If you were before the throne of God and you would say, I'll let you into heaven if you could name the Ten Commandments, could you do it? That's not the, that's not the test, by the way. But if God were to say, humor me, could you even name them? I never share the gospel where I don't mention all ten of the commandments. And they're not the only commandments in the Bible, which we'll see. But in Exodus 20, so now you know where they are if you didn't, verses 3 through 17, we see the ten commandments. Have no other gods before me, no idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, honor your father and mother, don't murder, or don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet what your neighbor has. How do we know these are timeless? Because every one of them is reiterated and emphasized in the New Testament. That's why. And they're expanded upon in the New Testament. Jesus said, if I have hate in my heart, I'm murderous. I'm, I'm breaking uh, the sixth commandment. If I'm lustful, I'm breaking the commandment against adultery and so forth. It deals with our relationship with God and it deals with our relationship with others. You know, when you think about the standards of God and how we become desensitized to human life across the board, we live in a murderous age, an adulterous, lustful, sinful age. I was reading some time ago with regard to violence about a man who killed a priest on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, stole the priest's car, and then drove his wife and kids to Disney World for a vacation. I'm sure they had a great time. I also read on Twitter of a man overhearing a conversation at a fast food restaurant in which two men in an adjacent booth we're discussing which soft drink would be best to use if you're going to poison somebody. And on and on it goes. We've left this foundation. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, when we think about the law of God, we're driven to this moral law that's timeless in its application. And if we're going to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, it's marked by obedience to what he said with regard to how we're to live. I think it's interesting to note how Jesus referred to the law. He had much to say about it. You couldn't be saved by keeping it. You couldn't be made right with God by some legalistic mindset. But he did say in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. That faith in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's laws because He kept them perfectly and we have not. 
Heaven and earth may pass away, but not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all this is accomplished. Jesus never said one negative thing with regard to God's standard or the Old Testament. He said in Luke 16, 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one dot of the law to become void. He said to the disciples in the, in the upper room, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So how does Paul use law here in Romans? How does he use the law in Romans? This leads us to, I think, another essential um, aspect of understanding law and gospel, and it's the threefold use of the law uh, put forth by the reformers. Uh, the law is a mirror. The law is a mirror, a two-way mirror. The law reveals, uh, comes from God and reveals the character of God. Um, God didn't have to look at some external standard. He only needed to look at his, his own character. When God reveals his law, he reveals himself, and the law is perfectly just. And so the mirror sees who God is and is overwhelmed by his majesty, and God reveals who we are, and as we see our transgressions and how we've fallen short of it. So God, it, the law reflects who God is, and it reflects who we are. Now, I want to take another excursion here into Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Um, in this psalm, we see the psalmist present two forms of God's revelation, his natural revelation, his general revelation in verses 1 through 6. I've already mentioned verse 1, the heavens declared the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. And then he pivots in verse 7 and talks about the written revelation of God, his word, the law of God. And notice how he describes this law. The law of the Lord, I'm in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These are synonyms used together to describe God's law, God's word. He mentions the law, Torah, the comprehensive uh, law of God. It means God's instruction. Our best equivalent would be the scripture or the word of God. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, it means an aspect of truth attested by God himself. Following the text onward to verse 8, uh, the precepts of the Lord, together with the word commandments, which comes next, means orders, God's orders, God's direction for us. How dare we dis disregard this in our life? But say, Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law your word. He mentions the fear of the Lord as a synonym for Scripture. It describes the Scriptures by the effect they produce and those who respond to the revelation. And so, David, who penned the psalm, he's dealing with the Scripture's true nature and function that God speaks. And notice what it does. The law of God does six things. It revives our soul. 
verse 7. There's something about hearing the scripture that, that brings revival to our soul if we're not kicking against the goads and fighting against God. It revives our soul. Sometimes we gather in this room and we're heavy and we're burdened and we're struggling and we hear the word of God and it revives us and we're reminded he's on the throne. He speaks to his people through his word. It revives my soul. He makes wise the simple. We often gather and I often pray, Lord, give wisdom to those who need it because life brings with it perplexing challenges, doesn't it? And we need wisdom beyond ourselves. And it, God's, God's word brings, makes wise the simple. It, brings, it makes our heart rejoice. It, it enlightens our eyes. It endures forever. It's counsel that we can count on regardless of time or season. And it's righteous altogether. The counsel we get in this world, it's 50-50. Maybe. <laughs> Apart from God's truth, it's, it's a zero, really. Sometimes we'll, we'll receive things that are helpful from others, but what sustains the test of time, regardless of the circumstance, is that his law is righteous altogether. And in verse 11, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. There's warning and there's great reward. When God's law comes to us and we see it for what it is, it brings warning to us like, don't do that. Don't. Like God came to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. Don't do it, Cain. And we have a choice, don't we? We can shuck off that counsel and say, I'm going to do whatever I want. Or we could say, Lord, your word is steadfast and true. It enlightens my eyes. It's what I need most. Help me in this time of trial and testing. And with it comes great reward through seasons that are tough, to persevere in faith, to obey the Lord brings with it reward. The full reward is yet to come. But if you've walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for any time at all, you know to, to follow in obedience brings great reward. What do you mean, pastor? I mean peace in your heart. I mean to know you're right with God. I mean, the way God answers prayer and brings healing and resources in the moment. And if not, we're still not going to bow to the idols of this world. It brings great reward. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. So we're warned by his law and we are rewarded by his law. It reveals who we are. It reveals who God is. So his, the law is a mirror in that way. A twofold mirror. It reveals who God is and it reveals us and our sin. And much like working in the yard when you get all dirty and you come in to get cleaned up, the mirror greets you, doesn't it? And it says and declares to you what? You're dirty, but it doesn't provide the soap. 
and it doesn't provide the water. It doesn't clean you. And so it is with sin. The law declares our sin, which leads us secondly to the law being a schoolmaster guiding us to Christ. And this is a reference in Galatians 3.24. An instructor, uh, this word um, in in Galatians 3.24, the law was a, uh, so then the law was our guardian in the ESV. Um, It's also translated schoolmaster. Uh, Some uh, understand this to be a taskmaster where you have the old pictures of um, of, of, of this schoolmaster uh, with a stick in his hand looking over the desks at his students, whack, if uh, he's not paying attention uh, or falling asleep. Um, the law as a schoolmaster, the word pedagogy comes from this word um, in, the, in the Greek, it refers to an instructor or a teacher of children. And... Um, and so when we think of the law, it is a schoolmaster that declares our error. In the history of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt to make bricks. And you, maybe you remember the cruelty of Pharaoh in the Exodus account where um, he demanded they make more bricks without straw. Remember that? And the cruel taskmasters would come and would beat them. And the people would groan under this taskmaster. And God said to Pharaoh, let my, let my people go. And they were delivered, set free. And so in Galatians 3.24, the law was the cruel taskmaster. And God's standard is held up to our human frailty and failure. So how does the law guide us as a schoolmaster to, to the cross? To Christ. How does it do that? Well, it shows us that, you know, I'm looking at the Ten Commandments and I'm not faring so well. If God's standard is righteous and complete obedience, I don't stand a chance as I look at the law. I haven't always honored my parents, my heart is not pure and clean. Every moment of every day. So the law is telling me the truth. And with its stick is going, you can't do it yourself. And guides me to a tree. Where one died for me. Who kept the law perfectly. And that by trust in him. The righteousness he earned on my behalf is credited to me by faith. The law is a mirror. The law is a schoolmaster. The law is a bridle or a restraint, thirdly, to keep things in check, to provide uh, boundaries. Uh, Sometimes uh, people, you'll hear the expression, you can't legislate morality. You ever heard that? That's all you legislate. Right? When a law is made, you're legislating a a truth claim or a standard. And so when I heard one commentator say, uh, when the government gathers together to meet in session, they do more than determine the state flag and the state bird and and have no business 
um, you know, some would say they have no business creating laws that in, infringe on behavior. Um, but, you know, they make laws of all sorts that deal with theft and weights and measures and segregation and discrimination and issues of justice. These are moral issues. How you drive your car on the highway is a moral issue. What is meant when it, it is said you can't legislate morality, it, it, what people are saying is just because you pass a law doesn't mean that people are going to obey it. And even though every time a law is passed, it incites really our desire to break it. You ever notice that? How that comes for free? Some restraint that, that we are not as unruly as we would be without the restraint of the law. If there was no speed limit on the highway, what do you think it'd be like? Yeah. So when we think of the law, it's a mirror, it's a schoolmaster, it's a bridle or a restraint in order to hold us in check, and for that we should be thankful. I thought of one other expression in the, in the Scripture, and that is... Um, Resting in the grace of the, of, the, of, of the gospel. Resting in the grace of the gospel. So when we think of this gospel, this law that's a mirror and a schoolmaster and a bridle leading us to Christ, we come to rest in what Christ has accomplished for us in this doctrine that's been emphasized so repeatedly in Romans um, chapter 3, this justification by faith. It excludes boasting. We can't brag about it. God's grace coming to us. He gets all the credit. It establishes a singular path to salvation, not many ways. And it upholds the law of God rather than undermining it. So faith in Jesus Christ actually upholds the law. It doesn't undermine it. And that's what Paul is arguing in chapter 3, verse 31. He's arguing that the gospel of grace does not nullify the law of God. God forbid it should. The gospel establishes the law. And in fact, the only thing that does or could establish it is faith in Jesus Christ. So, faith in Christ upholds the law. It upholds the law. It upholds the law. And so I pray that we would bring it to bear in our life. That when we read a command of the Lord, we would see it for what it is. God's word to us and say, Lord, help me to, to obey and to live out the principles of your word. That's how we grow. That's how we grow in holiness. That's how we reflect the love of Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I'm amazed at how many commandments are in the New Testament. I think of the one another's alone. The one another commands, over 30 of them. One could get tired keeping the one another's. It's mentioned throughout the New Testament. How are we to live? We're to live in obedience to what God has revealed through the standards of His Word. I thought of Ephesians 4. Maybe you could write this down and look at it later. But in Ephesians 4, we're to put off lying and, and put on telling the truth. We're, we're to put off anger and to put on self-control. We're to put off stealing and to work honestly for our wages. We're to put off destructive words and speak words that edify and build up and are truthful. We're to put off bitterness 
in unforgiveness and demonstrate love because that's how God has uh, demonstrated his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're to be imitators of God as dear children, which means that we're, we're to pursue obedience to everything he's called us to be. We're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We're to put off sexual immorality and to put on purity. On and on it goes. The commands are endless in the New Testament as well. So may the law of God drive us to Christ for more grace that we might reflect him in this world. I'll close with this. Psalm 119, 176 verses. The longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. And it's completely dedicated to the psalmist's love for the law of the Lord. He says, your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. But in verse 97 in particular, he says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation sometimes. No. Oh, how I love your law. I think about it on occasion. No. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Other verses reference day and night. I'm thinking about God's truth. That's, I think, the key to, to, to the Christian life is applying what he said by his grace into how we live. May God help us to do that. It begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We can't get past that. That is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. The power that can enter your life, change your heart of stone, and turn it into a heart of flesh, and give to you a future and hope through Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our praise team is coming. As we think about the law and the gospel, may they flow together in obedience and joy in our life. When we fall and make mistakes and enter into sin, we know that the path forward is to go to, go to Him, to go to Christ, to confess these things and to walk in a new path. Maybe this morning, I was just thinking how when we gather for worship, one of the things that should be happening over and over again is that all of us are honest about our sin. We talk to the Lord about it and leave here forgiven, cleansed, and ready to live for Him in everyday life. Lord, we pray as we close this service that we would do so with, with humility, with honesty, with, sin, uh, with uh, just a confession of our sin, and ask you, Lord, to guide us in these moments. May it be a, a time of surrender. May we present ourselves to you in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you want someone to pray with, uh, want someone to talk to, we'd be glad to do that. But may, may all of us uh, seek him in full surrender.